0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm thrilled to be back with you as we start our third season together. And I also want to apologize if I sound a little congested. The show must go on, you know, even when we're not at our 100% best. Suffice to say, all of us know that in this new decade, robots, automation, and artificial intelligence are poised to disrupt our workplaces, not to mention our careers and in potentially profound ways. And many of us, I think, are looking for informed guidance on how to successfully maneuver. So I'm pleased to welcome Adam Davidson to the show and to have him as our first guest of the new year. As you're about to hear, he brings surprising insight to a challenge we all face. How to evolve, adapt, and prosper professionally in the 21st century economy, one that bears little, if any resemblance, to the 20th century economy we're now leaving behind. Many of you may already know Adam. He is the brilliant creator of NPR's Planet Money podcast, in addition to being an award-winning staff business writer for the prestigious New Yorker magazine. And just this week, in fact, like two days ago, he published his new book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century, which we're gonna dig into deeply in just a moment. The key theme of Adam's book is that choosing one's career has always carried a great cost. If you pursued work that made your heart sing, you'd experience financial uncertainty and low income. And if you chose work that paid well, well, your spirit and soul would suffer from being disconnected to your passions. But as a keen observer and a journalist, Adam has discovered these economic rules and assumptions simply no longer hold up. Through interviews with scores of people who've already proved it, he's found that the way to excel in the new world order actually demands that we follow our passions, pursue work that leverages our talents and our interests, and succeed by means of our own personal uniqueness. As you listen into our discussion, my hope is that you'll have one ear tuned into the guidance you'll need to successfully transition in your own career, and another ear tuned to hearing how you can truly differentiate yourself as a leader in the new economy. Where we're headed, I think you're going to need both. And with that, I'd like to warmly welcome you to the podcast, Adam Davidson. Thanks so much for
1: having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Well, welcome. You're in uh, winter vacation in Vermont, and I appreciate you finding the time to do this. I'm very excited to talk to you about your book. I actually really loved it, and I love the whole idea of it. And one of the things I'm always intrigued by is what influences people to do what they're doing, what influences people to write what they're writing. And at the very beginning of your book, you talk about your father and your grandfather it was really fantastic the way you set this thing up because you said that they both had a way of shaping your understanding of where the future is going to go. And so let me just sort of describe this for the audience. You said that your grandfather, whose name is Stanley, worked his entire career in a ball bearing factory and only made a good living by working double shifts and after becoming a manager he treated workers traditionally as replaceable cogs in the machine and he believed that people who follow their passions go nowhere in life and so your dad growing up with this influence seems to have been repelled by the work life that his father had making money was far less important to him than following his dream of performing as a broadway actor on stage and he had zero interest in talking about business and really wasn't focused that much on making a profit or making a whole lot of income in his life. What he really, truly wanted to do is follow his passion. And so the setup is that we've long held this binary belief that one must either choose a career that provides money and stability, as your grandfather did, but kills our souls, which in many cases, it seems that that happened to him, or we follow our passions knowing that we're destined to a life of financial insecurity. That's the way you set it up. So as we start things off, tell us why you believe none of us needs to make this Faustian bargain any longer, that the emerging economy will be one where we can do work that
1: allows us to thrive both spiritually and financially. So thanks so much for that summary, that was awesome. The idea behind this book really started by me trying to make sense of these people I kept bumping into as a business and economics reporter who were doing this thing that I had been taught was impossible. They were living these lives that were passionate and exciting and their work was a real expression of who they are and what they value. But they were also doing well, and the core of this book is not billionaires. This isn't you know, a profile of a bunch of startup CEOs who became multi-billionaires, but these are all people who have very comfortable, decent lives, own their homes, have an opportunity to take nice vacations. These are well upper-middle class towards rich people, but they're doing it in ways that have full integrity and value and, and excitement and fun. And in trying to make sense of this, like how do these people get to do this? And my dad and my grandfather fiercely believed it was impossible. I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of historians and economists and came to the conclusion that it was impossible, that my dad and my grandfather were right. For most of the 20th century, most people did have to make this decision. My grandfather had kids young, It was the Depression. He had four hungry kids and a wife. And yes, he had to find a job, any job, and it wouldn't have been appropriate for him to wonder, are ball bearings my true passion? He just had to get a job and stick with the job and work hard. And my dad also, it would have been very hard for someone coming of age in the 50s and 60s to pursue a life of passion if they didn't happen to come from a rich family and have a comfortable life. But we are lucky. And what's weird is we're lucky for exactly the th- reasons that terrify us. Global trade, automation, computer technology, outsourcing, All of these forces that have really upended our economy and have done so much damage to the stability of the 20th century economy also provide exactly the same tools that allow us to figure out what we uniquely love and are good at and find those people, even if they're thinly spread all over the country or all over the globe, who also crave what it is we can provide and are willing to pay for it. And so that, to me, is the celebration of this book, that we're pretty lucky to be alive right now. And so much of my career has been focused on the many real challenges in our economy and the many reasons that people feel dislocated and terrified, which I do understand. But this is also true, that this is a really lucky Weirdly wonderful time to be alive.
0: I'm not so sure that everyone listening to this is going to agree with you right out of the gate. And so we're going to dig into this. In other words, we've been so conditioned to think that we have to sort of subordinate our happiness to go to work every day. And you're taking it to the other side of the fulcrum, which is to say that not only is that not true, but you can bring your passion to work. So keep that in mind here as we talk, because I'm hoping you're gonna expound on that a lot more, but I wanna go back to just like the history of all this, which is we had this widget factory, your grandfather in this classic ball bearing factory is sort of emblematic of what that looked like. And now you're saying that we're transitioning into and we're giving birth to this passion economy. So take us through, why are we changing? What's influencing this? And how is it opening the door for us to follow our passions?
1: Yes. And just to respond to the first part, which we can definitely get into, it's not that I think we can live our passions, it's that we have to, and that the old way just doesn't work anymore or works less and less and less. The old way of kind of getting a job and doing the job. So I think that to understand my argument, one thing I think is important is to realize that the 20th century economy was a blip. It's a weird moment in human history that if you look at since basically the dawn of humanity, most people in most places are essentially hustling. They're scrounging all day, every day to try and get enough calories to survive well over half the people who ever lived were subsistence farmers. And then you had, you know, various merchants and other people. And you had a very tiny group of hereditary elites, whether they were aristocracy or a priestly caste or whatever. But there was nothing like what we've come to think of as just the standard thing, which is a big corporation that employs a lot of people. You get a job you sort of have this either formal or informal contract that if you show up every day, you'll get paid a set salary and that there's this thing called a career path. And your personal economic destiny is weirdly detached from external environments. So my grandfather, it's not just he worked in the ball bearing industry, he worked at one company his entire career from 17 to 70 called Healed Machine and then Cincinnati Millicron. And He never had to wonder too much, like what's the price of metal or what's demand for ball bearings. He got a salary, you know, and most people live that life. They're buffered from the market. They're buffered from the day-to-day hustle of survival because they have this thing called a job. And we created, you know, our educational system around the job. We created pensions and our 401k system, Social Security, around the idea that you have working years and then you have retirement years. And all of that would have been seen as utterly bizarre and confusing to people in earlier times in history, where they really had to respond on a day-by-day basis, season-by-season basis, to the weather, to the market. And that system, that widget system, as I call it, this 20th century system, was fueled by this one-time opportunity, which is... When an economy goes from subsistence agriculture to industry, there is a one time hurdling upward in wealth and leisure time and calories consumed and all the material benefits of humankind. And that happened in the US where we were a subsistence agriculture economy in the 19th century and we became rapidly industrialized. It happened earlier in England obviously happened all over Europe. It happened in Asia and Japan and Korea. Now it's happening very rapidly in China. And this one-time boost is unlike anything that ever has happened before in the world. In country after country, you see the basic quality of life in measurable terms deck toppling getting 10 times better 13 times better radically better but that force that industrialization at first requires a lot of bodies if we stay with my grandfather stanley it took a lot of like big burly men and he was a big burly guy working in banging metal and bending metal and operating. There are these ovens that would harden the steel. And it was impossible for, say, Henry Ford or Alfred DuPont to get rich without also making a whole lot of other people better off as well, because he needed those people. He needed workers. But what we have seen in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that huge scale is getting scalier than ever. It's, you know, Procter and Gamble and Caterpillar and General Electric are doing great in size. There's an argument that they're not doing so great in actual ongoing growth, but they're huge and they don't need workers as much because they have computers and automation and they can relocate factories to low-wage countries and they can use automation in place of accountants and draftspeople and all those blue-collar workers. And so... The 20th century around which our understanding of just how the world works, the very idea that kids are generally better off than their parents and people are generally better off in their 50s than they were in their 20s, that's actually a new idea in human history that was not—that did not exist for most of human history. And it existed for a very specific set of reasons that have fallen away. But those same tools, that automation, that global trade, now allows somebody to have a particular ability, a particular skill. And this doesn't just mean making crafts on Etsy. It means being an accountant of a certain kind or having a view on leadership or simply having questions about leadership. And allowing that particular passion, whether it's through podcasts, through the internet, or through Etsy, or through FedEx, or through whatever means, to reach people spread around the world who share that passion and are willing to pay you money or pay you attention that allows you to charge advertisers. So that is my basic argument, that we were trained in a world system, a brief one, a blip in human history, but long enough that we all came to think of it as normal and that system is dying or all but dead for many people. But there's this other thing coming. That's the good news.
0: Well, here's what very new Oxford research shows, which is that there's going to be 41 million people, 28% of the United States jobs that are vulnerable to being replaced by machines and robots and automation. And that's coming soon. So are you saying that All 41 million can reinvent themselves successfully in their careers to find a unique niche, follow their passion, and make a sizable living?
1: I do think there's different winners and losers in this economy, and and there will be losers. There's no question. My argument is definitely not, hey, don't worry, I figured it all out. We're all fine. Everything's going to be great. My argument is, for people who have either have a passion or have an ability to develop a passion, because I think passions are not things necessarily where we have, they're things we have to develop. This is a great economy. My eight-year-old son is an extremely curious, passionate kid. I feel very excited about how he's going to thrive. But people who don't have passion or curiosity or people who don't have an innate ability or learned ability to adjust over time to embrace some degree of uncertainty. And frankly, just a lot of people who've been denied the right kind of education. I think there are lots and lots of people for whom the 21st century is going to be much rougher. And so my argument is not it's everything is great. Don't worry. My argument is, if you're worried, that's a good sign that you have the kind of curiosity and questioning nature that will allow you to thrive, but it's going to take work. It's not going to be handed to you. It is harder. I do think the rewards are potentially greater, but it's definitely harder. There's no equivalent now to You graduate school, you go down to the plant that your dad or your uncle or whatever works at, you get a job, and then you just have to make another economic decision until you retire. You know, that world is the world that is dying. And and there were people who thrived in that world and are going to be permanently worse off.
0: In your book, you say that for most of the 20th century, the safest, most lucrative strategy was to be more like others as possible. So The more uniform we could be, the better off we were going to be. And in the 21st century, the best strategy is to be fully yourself and to highlight your own differences from everyone else. So uniqueness is what's going to shine and differentiate. And that's where you believe the money is. So tell us why authenticity and differentiation will mark our success going forward and how this knowledge should shape how we lead our businesses and not to mention our careers. And I'm just gonna broaden this even more and say, you know, what does this do to our careers if we are working in a corporate environment? So does it apply? Should we be looking to be as unique as possible in our jobs if we're working within corporations or large organizations or do the old rules apply unless we leave those kinds of environments?
1: I think that this very much applies in a corporate environment and most corporate environments. And in fact, if it doesn't apply in the corporation you happen to work for, it might make sense to start looking to work somewhere else. Because if you think of anything happening at large scale, whether it's you know, I don't know, ivory soap being produced and distributed around the world, or, you know, financial products being designed and then sold around the world as 401ks, or, you know, you can think of almost any product or service. There's a lot of rote activity. There's a lot of sameness that's required. And you know, if you talk to any factory manager or any brand manager of any consumer good, sameness is essential. You want minimal defects, you want standardization, you want people who are eating at a McDonald's in Yakutsk, Russia, to have the same experience as someone eating in Joplin, Missouri. And sameness used to require lots of people doing the same thing, that you needed factory workers who followed a certain pattern. You needed logistics and shipping to follow a certain pattern. And this is a slight oversimplification, but not a huge one. Sameness is now obtained more from computers than it is from people. Sameness is... You go to a factory and they have CNC, Computer Numerically Controlled Machinery, that is programmed, and it is programmed by a human being, but then it just repeats the same operation over and over and over again precisely. You don't need a person. Similarly, you can automate Facebook ads or or whatever it might be and get sameness. Through software. It's not to say there are no people involved, but the people involved are doing something different. They're doing something non commoditized. They're either coming up with the standards, so they're, you know, whether it's business strategists or designers or or engineers, they're coming up with the standards that the machines will do, or they're coming up with the systems by which standardization will happen. And each of those things requires some little bit of passion, some little bit of difference. So if you think of a factory or any major business at any point in the 20th century, having each and every worker be different and pursuing things in their own way would be disastrous. It would slow the machinery down. It would prevent things from being distributed equally. So, you know, there was always, you know, some executives. Uh, they'd be fired. They'd be yeah. fired, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody was hired to be an accountant or be a person and told, just do it in your own weird way, mm-hmm. you know. Innovate all you like. A, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but now... Why would I need a standard accountant when I have Excel and I have Zero and all the other automated accounting software? I don't need that. What I need is somebody who can come up with some clever tax efficiency standards or who can figure out how to harmonize our accounting system across multiple jurisdictions where there's different laws.
0: So what do you advise in terms of how do our listeners pivot? So let's assume many of them are working in this kind of uh, environment that you've described here that has historically required or demanded uniformity. That's not going to make it any longer. And so as I'm approaching my career, and I'd also like for you to think in terms of like if I'm a leader and I'm a manager of people, what pivot should I be making? What pivot should I be making professionally, personally, and what pivot should I be making in terms of how I manage people? Like, How do I attract people who are going to be more innovative, unique, authentic in how they're approaching things that will ultimately bring me value?
1: So I really like the concept of positioning, and I associate it with the author Tim Williams, who I really like, who first applied it to ad agencies, but then eventually applies it far more broadly. And the idea of positioning is... There's a bunch of things that are universal goods. So I show up on time, I do my job, I don't steal from the company, I work hard. Those are things that nobody would ever disagree with. Nobody would ever say, well, actually, I'm looking for an employee who steals from the company and that doesn't show up on time. But then there's positioning, and positioning is essentially an authentic sales pitch about yourself. Here are the things I do that others don't do. And by definition, positioning is something that a reasonable person might disagree with. It's doing something that will have value in some contexts, but will be wrong in other contexts. It's not a universal good. And so if you are an accountant, say, you know, saying like I follow generally – agreed upon accounting procedures, yes, okay, you gotta do that. But let's say you say what I am fascinated by is figuring out how to harmonize European and American accounting standards. Or what I'm really excited about is training department heads who don't have a finance background to think in terms of finance. I now have a new company that's a joint venture with Sony Music and we have some people who are really great at that particular skill. Accountants who are really good at taking people like me who are business people but not particularly, you know, sophisticated in accounting and helping us think through our business. Now, that's not necessarily what you want every accountant to be doing. You want some accountants to just be doing accounting and you don't want them spending a lot of time training and teaching. And so it's not a universal good, but it's a good. It's a good that some accountants would be good at and some accountants wouldn't be good at. So I do think that you essentially want a sales pitch about yourself, the thing that makes you a valuable employee in a way that it would be very hard to find someone else who would also be good at that and in a way that actually adds value to the company and you can imagine, for almost any profession, you can imagine manifestations of this in different mm-hmm. ways.
0: But that is the essential formula, the way you just described it. And I think that's helpful.
1: But that is the essential formula. Exactly.
0: Yes. Well, you talk about a bunch of these people in your book. And so let me talk about passion, because that's really what we've got to get into and make sure that people understand exactly what you mean by it, which is an intense enthusiasm. And in your words, I think you said it connotes an overall overwhelming, positive emotion, one that can drive somebody their entire life it's a zealous pursuit of an aim, you said, and there's something spiritual about it. So it's deep inside of us. And I'm using that quote because I think that may help people find true north for them. Like, what truly is my passion? Leveraging the basics, being able to integrate with a normal structure, doing all the basic accounting things and not breaking rules and stealing. But how do I differentiate myself and make myself unique? It aligns to this spiritual, zealous pursuit of an aim. So your book is filled with stories about people who not only discovered what they're most passionate about, but then put it into play. So pick one, pick one or two that you really admire that you think would really illustrate what you're talking about here.
1: Sure. Well, I I really love Jason Blummer. He's an accountant who really was the first person who I met who helped me developed this idea that his life certainly embodies. So he has a pretty standard 20th century story. He, in college, he was in a Christian heavy metal band called Silence So Loud, by all accounts, a pretty mediocre one, but good enough that, you know, he had a brief moment in college where he thought, maybe I'll make it. But then he found himself, not only my grandfather, with a pregnant wife, and a need for a job, and his dad was an accountant. He didn't actually know what an accountant did. He just knew that's what his dad did, so he figured if it was good enough for his dad, he'd be one. He went to a not particularly good school, majored in accounting. He was not a really great accountant. It took him six times to pass the CPA exam, but he finally passed it, And just a quick mention, pretty much everyone in the book, I went out of my way to find people who were not independently wealthy or who went to Harvard. And then, you know, I wanted to find people who were very relatable and whose success really came from just figuring out a few basic things, not from some unbelievable genius like Steve Jobs, say, or Jeff Bezos. So and I think Jason would be the first to tell you he's not an unbelievable genius. He's a regular guy. And he found himself an accountant, like a lot of accountants. He worked at a CPA firm, and he would do audits and payroll, and he hated every minute of it. He absolutely hated it. And he kept coming back to this idea that nobody wants the services he's providing, that you don't wake up one morning and say to your loved one, boy, you know what I would love today? An audit. Or I'd really enjoy paying taxes today. That would be a really fun way to spend a day. And he just had this idea. What if I did stuff that people loved, that people loved? What if people paid me not because they had to, but because they wanted to? And that was it. That was the question. It wasn't anything more sophisticated. He didn't have a business plan. He didn't have a theory. And frankly, probably if you met him in 2004 or five when he first started playing with these ideas, you would have thought boy, this guy's going to be broke and, and unsuccessful. But he kept banging away at this idea and eventually took over his dad's firm and did some ridiculously dumb things from the standpoint of the 20th century. He decided he would only work with clients who really valued him, which meant he fired hundreds of his clients. He got rid of them. And he paid a lot of attention to the clients who responded to him and who he uniquely responded to. And pretty quickly realized, oh, the people I love are creative professionals, graphic designers, web designers, ad agency folks, who are really good at the creative work but are terrible at money. And I really find they're fun to work with and I really find that they seem to like to work with me. And so eventually he decided those are the only people I'll work with. And he got rid of all of his other clients. He basically found other accountants who would do their work and introduced them and and was done with it.
0: So he wanted to make a difference in these people's lives. Like, in other words, he was fascinated by the creativity of these kinds of businesses, but understood that they needed his expertise. So pin down why he would reject all of his other revenue generating customers. It sounds crazy. So I just want to make sure we understand why he did this and how he ended up being successful.
1: Yeah, well, and to explain the success, so when he had many hundreds of clients, he might have been making 60 to 80 grand a year. And, you know, if you think of the accountant you use, who maybe does your taxes for three or 400 bucks a year, or a little more if you have, you know, a private company or whatever. And, you know, you hopefully like your accountant, but maybe you're actually looking for someone who's just a standard accountant. That's who you're imagining. And that's who he was. And what he came to see is that he wanted a kind of relationship that can't be justified by, if you're paying someone a few hundred bucks or even a few thousand bucks a year, um, they can't spend a ton of time. They can't be up in your business and knowing everything about your business. And they can't be spending a lot of time if they're a general accountant, a CPA, they can't be getting deeply expert in your field, in your industry, because they have, you know, 150 different industries that they need right. to know. And so what he came to realize is he really likes this field, he wanted to know more about this field, and he wanted to do all the standard stuff, accounting, you know, basic accounting, payroll, audits, taxes, but he wanted more. He wanted to help these people understand their finances better and understand things like pricing. How do they price for their goods and services? Understanding how to set up payroll systems in a more efficient and mission-driven way. And so it took him a long time. I mean, hopefully we get to learn because it took him you know 15 years or so to figure it all out. But what he came to and is now very successful at is that if he keeps his client list to about 40 people, and he charges them many, many multiples of what he used to charge. So I am actually one of his clients. I like him so much that I became a paying client. I pay him a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars a year. And I'm happy to do it because I know what services he's providing me. I understand that he is actually making my life better.
0: So He's leveraging his expertise of knowing what's going on in your industry vis-a-vis all of the 40 different clients he has because they're all in the same industry and they're all having similar experiences. So he can accelerate your learning, which you're willing to pay more for. Is that the essence of what he did?
1: That's a big part of it. And then he's also just an expert at talking to people like me, people who get very excited about creative projects, but then maybe fall down on the job a little bit with with making sure that the, you know, the budgets add up and that figuring out how to take risks. He's also very smart on leadership, by the way, because he sees that as an integrated part of the whole operation. I mean, what he's learned is this issue of matching creative enthusiasm, creative passion with business rigor is a core leadership challenge and requires very often does require kind of double teams a team that includes like a kind of visionary creative type and a more what he calls an integrator uh, someone who makes those dreams possible by keeping an eye on the p's and q's and watching the store
0: so in a sentence or two what would be the big takeaway from his experience in other words What do you want us most to learn from what he did?
1: So that developing passion is a journey, and it's a journey that does not come full formed. You know, this is not, oh, I like Civil War stuff, so I'm going to become a Civil War book dealer or something like that. It requires a journey of self-discovery in which you find out what I think typically you find out is that there's no one capacity you have that's unbelievably unique, but the combination of capacities might be unique. So if we look at Jason, there are better accountants, there are better outsourced CFOs, there are better coaches and trainers. There are better leadership trainers, but there are very few people who combine all of those things for creative professionals in exactly the way he does. And it's that combination of things that is his core passion. And how does he know it? Because he loves his job and he loves going to work and his clients love him and that is just a different experience but he never if you had told him you know 15 years ago here's where you're going to end up he wouldn't have said ah yes that's my passion he would have been like really i don't know that seems kind of weird just took him that long to find it
0: i think that's true for all of us i mean i think that's kind of our you know we're born and then our lives are, you know, sort of designed to discover what those passions are. And in fact, in your book, something that came up that I thought was really interesting was how many different people that you write about had some sort of a profound, truly profound life experience that led them to a cause, if you will. And it it makes me think about this guy who I think was Like close to where you grew up in Greenwich Village, Nicholas Morgenstern. And he had a very difficult upbringing, but it shaped him to opening one of New York City's most successful ice cream stores. So that sounds crazy, but it's not crazy when you tell the story. So kind of give us a quick summary of what he experienced growing up and what influenced him to get into ice cream and then to become As passionate about it as he is.
1: It is, it's such a I love that story, and not only because I got to eat a lot of ice cream reporting that story. Probably interviewed him a few more times than I needed to just to get a little (sighs) extra ice cream. So and I'll tell you how I learned about this guy. Morgan Stern's finest ice cream, a friend of mine who's a food writer, a food guy, took me there with my son and his son and I had a chocolate ice cream and I had a mint chocolate chip ice cream. And the words I said were, this is the flavor I've been looking for my whole life and didn't realize. Like this is so much better than any other chocolate or mint chocolate chip ice cream I've ever had, that this is the ideal, this is the perfect flavor. I didn't know anything else about it other than the food was delicious, the ice cream was delicious. So I started reading about the guy, found a few articles, then met Nicholas Morgenstern and learned his crazy story. So he grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, to basically lost kids of the 60s and 70s. His mom was a very uninvolved mother. She eventually joined a cult. He doesn't know where she is or what's happened to her or his little brother. It's been decades since he's been in touch with them. He doesn't even know what cult they joined. His father was a near homeless kind of hippie guy who would just get carpentry jobs here and there. And Nicholas grew up essentially with no family. I mean, from a very young age, he was making his own meals. He was getting dressed by himself, getting himself to school. And he's somebody who you would imagine, you would be totally unsurprised to learn he was a, you know, a drug addict, dropout criminal in prison or something like that. He had just an absent family. But A few times when he was young, he spent the summer in Ohio with his grandparents and his grandparents would take him to this ice cream shop and going to this ice cream shop was basically the great memory of his childhood. And his grandfather and grandmother were very particular about which ice cream they would get. And then he became a very fancy chef. He actually fell into this world where he was a pastry chef for some of the top restaurants in the world. But he just started getting into ice cream. And he became obsessed with the idea that ice cream is the pure American food, and that capturing the perfect vanilla, the perfect chocolate, the perfect rum raisin, etc., would be a way to capture something essential about childhood in America. And he brings it to a level of perfection and obsession that is hard to fathom. And his work is, in a sense, an essay about America and about childhood.
0: But it's also about him. It's where he got his love where he felt belonging. And so in reading the story, it seemed to me that here's somebody who had no love, no stability in his life. And in this rare moment with his grandparents in some remote Ice cream store in Ohio, he found this is what gives me the greatest joy because I mean, it struck me that he just felt loved. He felt exactly. like connected. And so it didn't surprise me that this guy would commit himself to this kind of passion about making the most extraordinary ice cream because it seemed to me that he was pursuing every day going to work and feeling that same
1: experience that he felt with his grandparents. Is that kind of what you took from this? Absolutely. And you should see him when a kid comes in and eats his ice cream and loves it. And I've brought my son you know, many times. I bring my son as often as I can. And just the pleasure Nick gets, Nicholas gets from seeing kids enjoy his ice cream and realizing like a lot of those kids are going to remember this moment for the rest of their lives. And that's what he wants. He wants to be that rock in his customers' lives, that for the rest of their life, I one time had that perfect chocolate ice cream. Of course, he's a businessman, so what he wants is a thousand times I had that perfect chocolate ice cream. Now what's interesting is he's been approached by major kind of unilever, Procter and Gamble level companies to be Create a joint venture where his ice cream could be mass produced and spread all over the world. And, you know, he could become a multimillionaire, billionaire, Ben and Jerry's type. And his ice cream truly is that good. If it was available, you would buy it in your local supermarket. And he won't do it yet. It's not that he won't do it on principle, but he sees how mass production of ice cream has destroyed so much ice cream that you have to make all sorts of choices that take you away from that ideal chocolate, that ideal Mm -hmm. vanilla. But also, he doesn't think he's got it yet. He doesn't think he's fully found all the perfect flavors yet. And he says he's never gonna find them in a factory. So he makes his ice cream on site. He has two shops, but one of them has an ice cream factory in the basement. And he said, it's just, you gotta make it there bring it upstairs, see a kid eat it, talk to the kid, talk to the grownups. That's how you have to find that flavor. Now, once he's found his suite of flavors, once he's truly perfected them, then he'll be ready to do all of that. And I would like to think he'll be wildly more successful than he would be otherwise.
0: Well, he's aligning himself to his passion which is to make the perfect ice cream. And I think that that goes to sort of this underlying purpose and values that is the cornerstone of your book. I'm wondering if there is like one more example of somebody who you can think of that had some other life experience that influenced them. Perhaps the guy at Duke University who wasn't the great player, but got influenced to follow his passion and went on to finance companies Maybe that one.
1: Yeah, sure. But there's one key point I want to make about Jason, about the accountant, about Nicholas that there's two sides. The fun side is messing around with ice cream or hanging out with creative professionals because you love it. But the flip side of that is the discipline and the hard work. This doesn't work until you have an Excel spreadsheet and the numbers are positive. So I don't want to suggest that this book is a celebration of my dad, the actor, and a rejection of my grandfather, the kind of serious factory manager. It's both, you have to have both to succeed, unless you happen to have money somehow or you're super, super lucky. But even that, even the discipline where you can get the money is also becoming easier. And so that's why the story of Circle Up is such a good example. So you were talking about Ryan Caldwell, who he has a kind of amazing story of he went to Duke and he just dreamed, he's a tall guy, he's very athletic, he dreamed of being on the Duke basketball team, was not good enough. And, you know, Duke is obviously one of the top college basketball teams. So he got a job as sort of the assistant to the assistant coach kind of guy, like he'd make sure there was water at practice and the chairs were set up during the games, that kind of thing. But he would be there during practice, and then he would run the drills alone after the players left. You know it's like that movie Rudy. He was just an obsessive at improving himself even though his very best was well below the worst player on the team. And And if you meet this guy, he looks like Superman. He's like tall and muscular and athletic and you know, but he just wasn't good enough. And it took him a very long time to figure out Mike, Krzyzewski is the famous coach of Duke Mm -hmm. and Mike Krzyzewski who's a has written books on leadership and is seen as a very smart
0: lead from the heart is one of the
1: books that he wrote actually or leading from the heart something like that yeah Mm -hmm. leading from the heart and he talked to him about finding your passion finding your core and Ryan sort of spent a decade pursuing external success, not realizing that he was misunderstanding the message. He did end up going to Stanford Business School. I try not to have a lot of elite education in my book, but I allowed it in this case. He got a bunch of jobs at some venture capital firms and he hated every minute of it, even though he was externally successful. He was making good money. He was doing the thing that really smart kids were doing or smart grown-ups. And then he started this company, Circle Up, with one of his best friends and And CircleUp automates much of the venture capital process. And what it does is it's able to take in just millions of data points about every company in the United States and figure out how each company can be funded, but also figures out things like what color packaging does best for different categories and what size packaging does best for different categories. And so what I like about Ryan's story is it's both a good story about him as a person who found this very odd pathway to a passion. And he, like Jason Blummer, I don't think Jason Blummer's best life was as an accountant. And I don't know that Ryan's ideal life was as a venture capitalist. But when they made their transition you know, Jason already was an accountant. Ryan already was a venture capitalist, and so they built on it in a way that allowed them to find their passion through this field. And I like that idea. I like so that they made some compromise. The promise of CircleUp is that many, many, many more companies will be able to get venture capital and other investment than now. So now, of course, if you want venture funding, you know, there's a million things you got to do that costs a lot of money and take a lot of effort to get the attention of the big venture capital firms. But Circle Up is trying to democratize it, automate it, use the same tools that terrify us so much. So I actually did this with Nicholas Morgenstern, Morgenstern's Ice Cream. I had Circle Up run their AI algorithm on Morgenstern's, and they very quickly came back with, yes, this is a highly worthy, investable business. Now, Nicholas doesn't want owners. He doesn't want investors because he wants to control his process completely. But if he did, he could take that kind of circle up, essentially proven certificate of good health and go to investors without having to spend a year building his deck, You know, going to every cocktail party and meet up in the Silicon Valley. He could just do it much more quickly. And that is what is feeding Ryan, is he is allowing, you know, this country is filled with people, kind of like he was on the Duke team, people with hungry ambition, but are never gonna make it at that elite level, but still should have opportunity. They still should get investment, et cetera.
0: But the real story here, beyond the story, is that people are coming out of a career. They're coming out of some area where they have training and expertise, and then applying a personal passion to finding their own niche. And that's really the big takeaway from this book. That's really what these people in your book have done, and that's
1: really what you're advocating for, isn't it? Absolutely. That is exactly it. We probably have all heard of people, or there's movies about it, or have met people who take a total left turn. You know, At 58, they quit being a lawyer and become a shepherd or something like that. And look, if that works for you, great. Go for it. But I find that the people who seem to be the happiest and most successful that I come across are people who do exactly what you just said. They, whether by choice or just by kind of following you know, the advice from others or just what they thought they were supposed to do, they find themselves, whether it's their 20s or 40s or 60s, with a particular career and a particular path – And they're able to use the expertise they've developed, use the network and contacts they've developed, and then they're able to add that passion piece. Because passion, it's not just, oh, I have a passion for chocolate or I have a passion for knitting clothes or whatever. I think In almost all the people, well, in all the people we've talked about, the core of the passion really is something about human connection. There's a way of relating to other human beings that I want that's a little bit different than what my job is giving me. And so the thing itself isn't necessarily the important thing. Like Jason Blummer probably could have been a very happy teacher or a very happy, you know, guidance counselor or something like that. It's possible Nicholas Morgenstern could have his passion for childhood and finding that perfect childhood. Maybe he could have been an elementary school teacher or some other thing. Mm -hmm. In his case, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled ice cream is what he found, and I'm thrilled Jason found his path. But the real core of the passion is not the thing. It's not the product or service they're selling. It's something else, and the product and service is a way to get it. And by the way, this is, for me, the key lesson for leaders. I mean, I think all these lessons apply to leaders who, if they're running a company, to the extent they can run it from passion. And that's something I'm, as a newly minted CEO, I've been a CEO for six months. And the hardest thing for me is to realize that, yes, I have to learn a bunch of external things that CEOs have to do, but I really have to trust my own passion and my own hunger and that this job isn't going to work if I don't harness that.
0: You just read my mind on this, (laughs) Adam. I mean, this is exactly where in the final moments that we have, I wanted to get into with you. But I want to break this up just a moment. We have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation and we ask our guests a rapid succession of questions aimed at learning more about their personal interests, their influences, life philosophy. And we call it the heartbeat round because all the questions require a brief and instinctive answer. In other words... We want you to answer them in a heartbeat. So I'm going to call out a few questions here and ask you to answer them as quickly as possible. you game? I'm ready. All right. The thing you most appreciate about having grown up in Greenwich Village in New York City?
1: Having such a rich group of weirdo grownups who I grew up with.
0: You believe we're all better off doing things that we love. What do you love most doing in your career?
1: I really love interviewing people. I really love being able to just dive deeply into some strange person's life, whether they're in the U.S. or Iraq or Haiti, and learning all about them Mm. and how their very different life works.
0: One book you wish everyone in the world would read?
1: I really like Why Nations Fail by my friend Daron Ajamolu and Jim Robertson. It's a way of thinking about how governments should and shouldn't work that's different from our usual partisan lens, and it's also a fun read. So, yeah, I could think of others, but that's the one that popped into my head. Great.
0: Your best advice to other podcast hosts, and I'm asking this one for a friend.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's actually a tricky one since I spent half my life giving advice or taking advice about podcasting. I think that, the, in, in a sense, it's basically the same as the passion economy. Why are you doing the podcast? What is the urgent driving need for this podcast? And that, to me, is the essential question. And when you answer that question, everything else should flow from that. Or just don't do the podcast.
0: (laughs) The trait you most admire in other people.
1: I am amazed at people who can think in a more disciplined, patient way. I am... An extremely impatient person who jumps from idea to idea, which, frankly, I like. But I am amazed at people who can slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, deliberately go through life. Your synonym for the word heart. Love? Passion? Can I say passion? Is that, does that yeah, sound like too much? Right? I thought that <laughs> yeah. would come up, but we'll take, passion, we'll take them yeah. both.
0: <laughs> Your favorite quote or mantra.
1: My favorite quote or mantra, let me think about that. There's one I use for businesses that I really like. I don't know if anyone else really likes, but it is, things that make sense should make sense. And what I mean by that is, as a business reporter, as a citizen, (laughs) we're bombarded with people who have some business idea that they want you to invest in or they think you should be impressed by or is going to take over the world. And if it makes sense it should make sense. And it is amazing how often that very simple mantra cuts through some BS and you realize, oh, that business makes no sense.
0: <laughs> a magazine or newspaper you never miss reading?
1: Well, of course, The New Yorker, where I am a writer. And I read that religiously. You start with the cartoons? I often do start with the cartoons, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, I don't know. For political analysis, I really like Talking Points Memo, Josh Marshall.
0: Quality that derails the most leadership careers.
1: Arrogance, definitely. I would put that very high up.
0: Number one answer, by the way. Is that true? Absolutely. And I ask it almost every time, and it's universally the, the one that just keeps coming up. So one subject you think that all leaders would be wise to bone up on, since you have a view into the future?
1: I think business history is incredibly helpful. Understanding how great and terrible businesses have started, how they've failed, what choices they've made along the way. You learn well, you learn a lot of humility. You learn a lot of really helpful lessons. You get to understand what is special and unique about now and what is really, really typical throughout. So I I love business history and nobody does. Nobody cares. That's what I always find weird. Nobody cares. About business history. It's hard to even get business people that interested in business history. Yeah, I understand. A life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier? Follow my gut more. I think that I wasted a lot of my life pursuing paths because other people either told me to or I sort of intuited that it was the right way to go and that I wish I had trusted my gut more along the way. One skill improvement you're working on right now? Photography. Just for fun. I feel like it's something I'm really bad at. And I think it's good for leaders and others to spend time doing things they're really bad at, even if my goal is not ever to be really good at it.
0: Those are great. Those are wonderful answers. So thank you for going through the heartbeat. Yeah, Adam, that was with fun. Me, I love that. <laughs> that was very <laughs> yeah. cool. I want to get back to our chat here. I have one more question yeah, for you, please. but thank you for doing this with yeah, me. Yeah, thrilled. Thank you. So, what guidance do you have to leaders? specifically within their own career, but also in terms of helping their own people transition into, you know, this 21st century economy.
1: So, yes, and I think just like we talked about how there used to be jobs in the 20th century that were kind of a set unit and, you know, you were plant foreman number four at plant number six or whatever, Mm And you had to fill a box. There were tons of companies that were what some economists call supply chain companies. You were in a supply chain, you took one semi finished material, you transformed it in some way, and then you sold it on to the next link in the supply chain. And those companies, just like the employee at the big corporation, really shouldn't be going around trying all sorts of innovative new ways of doing things. They shouldn't be wondering too much about their passion. But those companies now are much more likely to be in a rapidly changing, wildly disintermediated, disrupted supply chain, where they need to constantly figure out and shift their business model. And the passion piece is essential. You have to it's the same argument. You have to find that unique thing that your company can do. Now that doesn't mean, and I struggle with this myself, that doesn't mean becoming self-indulgent and shifting the company, you know, every couple of days because your passions change or, you know, I'm no longer and airplane parts manufacturer, because I just don't happen to have that passion anymore. We're now gonna, you know, sell turntables to hipster hotels or something. I mean it, it has to be rigorous and, and rooted in, you know, if there's not an Excel spreadsheet, you're not doing it right. But you have to tap into that unique thing which at the end of the day, if you are a true leader, is you. That is something you have to be a central part of. But then the other thing as leaders is you have to recognize that all of your employees have this potential too. And so my company, one of the key things that me and my co-founder, Laura Mayer, are obsessed with is both promising, but then actually you have to then follow through on the idea that this is a company where people can find their passion, develop their passion. And what we're learning is when you tell people that, no, they have to do a job. It's not that every morning everyone just figures out whatever they want to do. They have to do their job. But we basically want every single person on staff to be on something of a learning journey, that there's a view that over the next year or two, here are the skills and opportunities and experiments you're gonna be able to to follow.
0: Do you involve the employee in that or is it prescribed? No, no, it's fully involved with them.
1: Okay. And then it can mean formal education where we pay for them to go to a class. It could mean creating an internal mentor where they wanna learn how to do something that someone else in the company already knows how to do. So they're given a mentor.
0: But you're prescribing something that's based on what they're interested in, not so much what you think they should be interested in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation. So if they say, you know, we're a podcasting company, we make podcasts. So if someone said, I really want to learn how to knit, You know, we might say, we might not be the place for you uh, unless you can really come up with a great knitting podcast. But so far, that has not been an issue. They work for us for a reason, and they want to learn things. And in every case, it's been things where we've been able to say, wow, we'd be a much better company if you knew how to do that. So let's get you there. And what we're learning is you just get a kind of loyalty that wouldn't exist without that. So my argument about the passion economy is this is my argument, I I could be wrong, but my view is I'm not defining it or creating it. I'm just observing it and describing it. And that more and more and more employees are going to see that they live in a passion economy. And the more valuable they are and the more unique value they bring, the more they're going to know that. They're going to see more of their friends, more models of people who are able to do this. And if you want to keep them and keep them motivated and harness that energy, then you have to have a passion-based component Again, it doesn't mean everyone gets to do whatever they want. There's discipline, there's expectations, and I'm a pretty tough boss in a lot of ways. I definitely have very high standards and, and insist people meet them. But I want them, especially in podcasting, which is just happens to be a rapidly growing field. And so anyone who's at all good, there's a huge hunger for them and they know they can get a new job somewhere else, probably get paid more. I want them to feel that they're going to develop themselves and they're going to have a better sense of what they want out of life by staying here than if they just bounce around to different places. And I think that is a key leadership lesson. And it's something that we misunderstand about. We talk about millennials and others as being self-indulgent. And I don't know some of them are. <laughs> we
0: some. don't hear. We, we don't hear. No.
1: <laughs> others may. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's just a recognition that they are growing up in a different economy, in a different world, and for their own survival, but also for their fun. I mean, think about how we talked about Nicholas Morgenstern and what ice cream means to him. If you can have that experience in life, how in the world are you going to go to a job you don't like that much? So I'm not a big believer in ping pong tables and, you know, giving everyone lots of free snacks and all those kinds of things. To me, I mean, they do it or don't do it, I don't care that much. But That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about seeing how you can match your employees' deepest hunger with the needs of your company in a way that brings value to both. That's what I'm talking about.
0: And I agree. And I think it's the other, just to pin it down here, it's not just identifying one's passion, but giving people in the context of the industry that they're in, so in your case, it's podcasting, it could be banking or insurance or construction or what have you, in the context of those confines, saying, what would you like to learn? How can we help you grow, align to your passion? Those are the two components here that I think is the big takeaway from this discussion.
1: Exactly, exactly,
0: yes. So with that, Adam, I'm going to say thank you very, very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. The book is fascinating. We're really talking about an ambiguous future and you're reading the tea leaves and saying, hey, if you align yourselves to what you're good at and what you're passionate about, you're going to end up just fine. Is that a great way to end this?
1: That is exactly the way to end it. Now, it's going to take work, but the work will be fun.
0: We're all hard workers here. Our audience is a bunch of hard workers, (laughs) so I don't think that's going to steer anybody clear. But listen, (laughs) thank you. I know you did this on your vacation, and I'm so very grateful. So thank you so very much.
1: No, this was a really fun conversation. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Very smart questions. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Before we say goodbye, I'd like to welcome our many new listeners to the podcast. It is a joy to have you here, and I should also thank those of you who've been with us for a while for all of your recommendations and referrals. We have seen a rather significant jump in the number of people downloading episodes of the podcast, and so that is highly encouraging us to keep going and doing what we're doing, so thank you. And as a quick background, I'm the author of a book called Lead from the Heart. It's now required reading in nine American universities, including one MBA program and a leadership PhD curriculum. And I started this podcast in April of 2018, largely because I discovered my book alone wasn't sufficient to persuade many business and workplace managers that caring deeply about people is the road to leadership success. So my goal with this podcast has been to intentionally introduce you to cutting edge thinkers whose own work provides meaningful validation for the lead from the heart philosophy and over time, drip by drip, to help prove the future of workplace management demands greater balance between mind and heart. That's the goal. That's the focus. And every single person who comes on is aligned to that message. And I invite you to connect with me personally. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. And my email address is on my website. I would love to hear from you. And I'm also a professional speaker and a culture and engagement consultant. And so I'd also love to help you and your organization in any way that I can. As I close, I want to thank my wonderful team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Young, the designers of my new website, Mirjana Novkovic and Josh Richard, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow, I promise. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.